Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Samantha, one of your hosts today, and I'm so excited to be back. And I'm Rebecca, also one of your hosts today. We're still doing the podcast over Zoom for the first season ever, so we're happy to be able to virtually see each other despite the pandemic. And I'm Evelyn, another one of your returning hosts today. Again, the audio might be a little bit different from what you're used to, as we are not in our usual studio, but the stories are just as impactful as always. And I'm RJ. You might recognize my voice from the last episode as an author. As a new addition to the Life at Life family, I'm very excited to host for the very first time. And I'm Leisha. Thank you for joining us on the second episode of our fifth season, entitled Found Out. In this episode, two authors learn new information that must be kept secret in different ways. And I'm Karen. Now, let's get into these stories. This story is by an author named Hibawita Santana. After struggling to choose what degree she wanted to pursue, Hippolyta Santana came to a realization that she had an inner passion and talent for writing. Born and raised in the Bronx in New York City, she received her Bachelor of Arts degree in English and Creative Writing at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Today, she thanks all of her teachers, professors, and classmates whom she met along the way for helping her discover her God-given talent. Though she doesn't want to pursue anything further with her degree, she is a strong believer that one should only write when their emotions want to transfer into paper at that given moment in time. She calls it soul writing. She believes that kind of writing is the most impactful whether it be a verse, a poem, or a song simply because the heart is open to its truest form. Other than writing, she enjoys cooking, eating out, going out on adventures such as hiking, and more. Currently, she is a full-time investor in the stock market exchange and a cryptocurrency investor. She hopes that with her investment, she will one day reach financial freedom and become wealthy for she believes digital currency is the future and will become the new fiat. A warning that this story touches on very sensitive topics that may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. Let's take a listen to this piece by Hippolyta entitled Without a Trace, read by Maioli Hernandez. My extended family members reside in a small town called La Descubierta. It literally translates to the discovered, found in the southwestern region of the Dominican Republic. I am now visiting. Sometimes it feels more like home here than it does at my real home in the Bronx. It is a hot and humid day this July when I find myself at my Aunt Ruth's big yellow house made out of concrete blocks. It is gated with golden bars around its perimeter. I sit on the porch in a rocking chair for close to an hour looking at the sky. It reaches just about every color of the rainbow, this Dominican sky, but in a gradual way, and perfectly blended way, a discreet way. I stare into the hills that sit an undeterminable distance from me. They are heavily forested, but 
out of the dozens of hills at my sight, only one stands out. Fog rises from it, creating a thick smoke-like haze. It is as if the hill is on fire. I love this place, but I can't help but feel an edge. I wonder why my cousin Maida reacted the way she did when I wanted to bathe alone in the canal earlier today. Not even the rhythmic rocking of the chair creaking and cracking on the beige marble floor beneath me can take my mind off the way her face looked earlier today when she told me to stay inside. She suddenly joins me and has a plate of sweet fried plantains cut into slices, fried salami, and one huge slice of fried white cheese. She sits on the rocking chair across from mine and we eat in silence. Why did you tell me not to bathe in the canal earlier? I finally ask Maida. Well, she pauses and looks down at her plate. I stopped you because it is dangerous to go there alone. I would have preferred you to have gone in the company of someone else. This campo, she says, has changed a lot in the last 20 years, and that includes the morales of the people as well. She carefully sets down her glass of banana smoothie on top of the small polished wooden table between us. Why didn't she just come with me herself then? I wonder. You sure you're not just trying to avoid the sun? I do know that you dislike the sun and getting a tan from it. I say, giving her mean eyes while I joke about her insistence on remaining the whitest in the family. No, it's not that, she says as she sips on her banana smoothie. The water in the canal has become so contaminated over the years that scientists and students from Santo Domingo have even written articles about it. The government won't do anything about it. Abuelo even found a headless goat floating in the canal a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, sure, I say sarcastically. Something about her tone tells me I'm not hearing the whole story. I cannot help to think she's trying to scare me, but why? I envision the headless goat in the canal. It bobs down the stream, slowly, its eyes blank. I imagine it greeting me there if I had bathed in the early morning sun that day, not knowing that the waters had become cursed and drenched in the blood of the goat. I might only realize it once I smell the powerful stench of rotten meat in the waters, or I might hear it coming with the buzzes of the flies, their sound growing deafening as they follow the carcass down the river, ready to make war. I look back at my cousin. I know she's still withholding information, even if it was the truth that the water wasn't clean. Was there a particular incident that made it no longer safe to bathe in the canal? I push further. I just know that there is something not being discussed here, I say slightly forcefully. I'm getting full, but I take a bite of my sweet plantain. I'm getting frustrated now. Speak up, Maida. She cites. There was an incident that convinced everyone that the campo was changing. She began, avoiding my gaze and staring at the green palm tree beside her. We are silent as I wait for her to continue. It happened when we were children. Your mother, Diana, and the rest of your family were in New York at the time. Back then, our aunt Belize went to the canal alone every day to take a bath as usual. Slowly, as time went by, her abdomen kept on getting larger and larger each day. So, what does that have to do with me wanting to bathe in the canal, I push. That was when our grandfather and the rest of our family realized that our aunt 
had been raped. There was no way of telling whether or not the sex was consensual, but at the same time, everyone in the town knows that she is mentally handicapped. She really couldn't have consented. Really? She was raped? I project. My fork drops to the marble floor. Maida gets up and walks back into the kitchen, leaving me alone in silence as I picture my aunt, Belize. Belize is 5'4", of cocoa complexion, with short hair that resembles black tea. She always has a smile on her face. She grinds coconuts into shred to feed the hens and roosters each morning. She has a speech impediment. She is hardly understood by anyone but her relatives. She isn't capable of providing for herself, but she offers a lot to the family, her siblings and parents on whom she relies. Maida comes back with a glass of lemon juice and I pick up my fork from the floor. The sound of our rocking chair fills the space until she continues. Our grandfather was so infuriated, according to my mother, that there was no telling what he was going to do. He was so angered by the fact that someone took advantage, raped his mentally handicapped daughter. All my mother could say was that grandpa took his machete and started knocking on the doors of everyone in the village. As she absently grabs the last piece of salami from my plate, she seems to be talking only to herself. She has forgotten that I'm there. I can see her returning to this terrible time in her mind. When she snaps back, she asks, haven't you noticed the three times you have visited here that she will only bathe in the small wooden shed behind your grandmother's house? I am speechless. But finally, I say, I had no idea. I had no idea that she was raped. My siblings and I, we, we never knew about this. Are you sure you're just not trying to scare me? I stare at her intently while I sip on lemonade that I barely taste. No, I'm not. Anyways, I really don't like talking about the situation. We can bathe in about an hour at La Baria with Karina, Yakira, and Rachel. The water is so much cleaner there, and it's much more refreshing. My father, your father, and your grandfather are going to be there too. She closes the discussion as she rises from the rocking chair and grabs my greasy plate. She leaves the porch and doesn't come back this time. I quickly chug my remaining lemon juice. My heart is beating quickly. An hour later, Mayra and our two other cousins, Yakira and Rachel, and I make our way to La Varia, a 15-minute walk from our Aunt Rudy's house. I should feel happy that we are heading to La Varia because I love bathing outdoors, but I am distracted. I am too busy thinking about what had happened to Belize to be excited. <sighs> When we reach La Varia, children are throwing themselves in the large body of the bluest water. It looks clean, like there is no goat blood there, nothing to taint this day. The children are mostly naked, but some wear bathing suits, I note. As they squeal and laugh, four huge huts made out of hay, about 90 feet from La Varia, shaved, chatting townspeople who are drinking Corona and eating fritura. The sounds of steel pans echo the movements of women who cook furiously inside of them. I soon throw myself in the cold water, tearing my honey soap bar out of its cardboard box. As I lather, I jump up and down in the water like a child, laughing and playing with my cousins, but I am not fully present, like the others. I'm still 
thinking about Aunt Belize. Who was the guy who did this to her? Had he planned it? Does she know him? Was she yelling and crying? Could he even understand her words at all? Did it happen more than once? How could she have never told anyone? Was she scared when she saw her belly growing? I reach for the soap a second time and lather myself once more. I try and try, but I cannot wash away the thought of Belize ever being touched by the animal who took advantage of her. I lather and lather again and again and again, but it doesn't work. Her story has become part of my memory, as if the unjustly act done against her has become a part of my very being. <sighs> I get out of the water and dry myself with the towels we've left on top of the palm tree leaves. From a distance, I see our grandfather Egypt. He walks toward us with my father. Egypt is 5'5", has a sun-kissed complexion similar to hazelnut cream. His eyes remind me of black coffee, and he has the face of someone who had lived long. I picture him as Maida said, moving from door to door in the village, his machete dragging behind him. Today, he carries mangoes and bananas inside a clock sath. He reaches inside of it and begins to offer the fruits to my cousins and I, a generous grandfather providing for his grandchildren. He sits under a tree observing all of us and I find my mouth filling with words about Belize. Do you know who raped Belize? I ask nervously as I dig my hands through the sackcloth looking for the biggest mango. Who told you Belize was raped? He asks softly. I don't know, I just heard. I lie fearing to tell him that it was Mayra. Well, he says, but only a long pause follows. The lines and wrinkles on his face grow more noticeable now because he is frowning. His face changes indicate that he is overwhelmed with emotions, but at the same time, he seems to have developed an acceptance. He seems calm. All I'm going to tell you is that I have never felt so much anger in my entire life. I was capable of killing somebody when I put two and two together. I began to notice her belly had been growing for a few weeks, he says in a fierce low tone. Do we know the person who raped her? I ask again. There is a strong rumor that people know who may have done it. The town knows, but I don't know what is going on with that. Que Dios me libre, he stated as he peels the mango with his front teeth. Wow, it's all I can say as I eat my mango, watch my cousins laughing and enjoying themselves from a distance. We both stare off in silence. The sun soon sinks and I see the stars I never saw in the Bronx. Too many streetlights, I guess. But as beautiful as the stars are this night, nothing compares to the white smiles of everyone partying at La Varia. Everyone is drinking, dancing, and talking to one another. I see Aden from a distance walking towards Egypt. Aden, on Belize's son, wears a blue polo shirt and beige pants. The shirt complements his sun-kissed skin and his sunburned cheeks. And then I see Aden from a distance walking towards Egypt. Aden, on Belisa's son, wears a blue polo shirt and beige pants. The shirt complements his sun-kissed skin and his sunburned cheeks. He looks like a schoolboy. 
He sits on our grandfather's lap and says, Bendiciones, papa. My grandpa gives him a mango, and he too begins to skin it with his front teeth. Oh, wow. Wow, that was, wow, wow, wow. That was a beautiful story. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get started, if you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, there are resources available to you, many of which can be anonymous. National Domestic Violence Hotline can be reached at 800-799-7233 and 800-942-6908 for Spanish speakers. This is a 24-7 hotline that provides crisis intervention in both English and Spanish and referrals to local services and shelters for victims of partner or spousal abuse. You can also contact the Stand Against Domestic Violence Crisis Hotline at 888-215-5555. Also tonight, we unfortunately don't have Hippolyta in studio with us, so we're going to have a roundtable discussion on her story. And to kick off this discussion, Hayden, Aunt Belize's son, is mentioned at the end of her story. He calls the author's grandfather, Papa, which in many Spanish-speaking countries means dad. And it makes us wonder what sort of relationship they have with one another. It's like he has accepted him as his own. What do you all think about that detail? I think that's a beautiful detail they put at the end, honestly. <clears throat> I wasn't expecting that detail in the end after um, the whole story of uh, when you're talking to the grandfather, how, how angry he is. You would think mm -hmm. that most people would resent the the child but he doesn't I love that he brings him in as his own I think it's it's a very beautiful end ending to the story yeah I also think it says a lot about what like family means and just sort of how interconnected mm. everything is right like um in Spanish the word for grandparent is abuela or abuela or abuelito or abuelita but just the fact that he calls him papa and not abuelito I think is a sign of just how interconnected he is with his grandfather personally that's just sort of that was my take on that definitely definitely because you know he's a person who the history of the person who's probably his biological quote-unquote father is very rough like to to deal with so he has that father figure there within mm -hmm. you know his his grandfather like he has that person that he can call papa because i'm sure this is a kid who's hearing everyone else call other people papa yep. like friends stuff like that and it's it's just you know with such a hard history of how this person came into existence the fact that he gets to you know have community have family have that like family structure is is really wonderful um and after hippolyta questions her cousin myra as they eat mango about the reason she won't let her bathe in the canal alone myra tells hippolyta i stopped you because it is dangerous to go there alone I would have preferred you to have gone in the company of someone else. So Life Out Loud is very fortunate in that we are primarily run by women. And Hippolyta is a woman who is learning that a fellow woman, her Aunt Belize, has been harmed in a place that she loved, Hippolyta loves. Um, 
would disturbing this would disturbing news like this have made you all feel differently about a place that you love absolutely um i can also speak to this as one of the um as one of the few men on the um production board i can actually and not to make this about me at all but i've had family members who have dealt with domestic violence in their past lives i've had mother and father have instances in separate past relationships so honestly i'd say if this happened in a specific place like for example the king's plaza mall it's hard to go back there like again this is a bit of a personal story but my father lost a person he loved when he was very young due to a rape and murder by somebody else in the king's Plaza. And, and to this day he still won't go back to her gravesite. So it's a very hard thing in my opinion. I'm sorry to hear about that. I actually, I can also bounce off of this um, from one of my own stories, um, which I can't even remember what season that was. <laughs> Probably like season one or two, but mm -hmm. I don't remember your 19th birthday. That takes place in, in my dorm. And I could not dorm after that. Like that was um, domestic, yeah domestic violence, I'm sorry, sexual abuse really causes um, a lot of pain in a place. Uh, and it's really hard to revisit those places once that pain happens. It's like you relive the pain again. Right. Places that you call home. Like mm -hmm. You're living in your dorm. You're living in DR all of these summers. Mm -hmm. exactly. and you just don't see those same places the same way. You revisit exactly. these places and it's your brain automatically remembers that, that traumatic event, one experience. So mm -hmm. it really is something um, personal. It's something that makes one feel so many emotions. And it's a lot, it's a whole grieving process that one has to go through. And it's really, really hard. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting too, because on top of the gruesome actions that were taken on the canal as well, she gets this visual in the story of a goat's head floating down the river and the blood taking over the water, which is such gruesome imagery not only in conjunction with the acts that occurred, but also just as standing by itself. So not only would knowing that this would happen to like, for example, my own aunt, uh, that I would be hesitant to even go back, but having that imagery of like a goat's head floating down the river as well would make me say, all right, maybe not anymore as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Rebecca, since you mis mentioned the go-head um, and the image of it going down the stream, do you think that that was true or metaphorical? Do we think that her grandfather was implying something else when he mentioned the headless goat? I wouldn't doubt that it was true. I, I honestly would not doubt that it was true because there are certain things, especially in like more Caribbean countries, um, that things like that could happen. So like my folks come from Guyana and stuff. So I would hear stories about things like that happening every so often. So it's not something that's out of the realm of possibility in my mind. And I guess to leap off on that, um, I guess if you guys remember in her story, um, we find out that the grandfather, once he found out what happened to Aunt Belize, um, goes knocking on every door in the neighborhood with a machete, I believe, in hand. 
Mm-hmm. So when it came to talking, well, you know, the, the headless goat appearing in the story, I wondered um, if the machete that he had kind of like connected with the headless goat, probably mm. as a symbolism of vengeance, trying mm. to um, obtain justice and make sure that justice was taken for um, the aunt to make sure that something was done about this, because we also find out that nobody... Um, people, there are rumors of who this person was, but it seems like nothing has been done about it. And I believe mm-hmm. that imagery kind of shows a symbolism of ju- justice or vengeance being done. We can go into a literary discussion for three hours or so. Honestly, I definitely agree. I think it's a symbolism to show the sort of blood and vengeance. I specific, And again, we could talk about goat specifically like goats baby goats or kids for example so to get into a symbolism but i yeah i agree yeah the historically or um from a literary tradition too goat heads are um you know associated with the devil mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know a, a, like ritual or, or things like Sacrifices. that is yeah Sacrifice, yeah it's so interesting. I never made the connection together with uh, the goat head and the machete and vengeance. So I'm really happy that we're discussing this because that mm-hmm. story has gotten like a thousand times better. Not that it was, wasn't good in the beginning, but mm-hmm. now it's like really good. <laughs> so eerie. Mm-hmm. Yes, this was great. You got it. You got it. Wow, everyone. That was such an amazing discussion. I loved all the responses that you gave and it was it was a good time. We had a good time. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks. This story is by an author named Alishpa E. We're especially excited because Alishpa is a freshman. She's one of our very few first-year students we've ever had on the podcast. Alishba is a 17-year-old Pakistani-American freshman at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, majoring in criminal justice management. She was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. In her free time, she enjoys reading books, watching TV shows and animes with her older brothers, occasionally drawing in her sketchbook and taking pictures of new plants growing out of her mother's garden. Alishba aspires to become a lawyer so that she may be someone who can help out others who are facing predicaments to help them obtain a joyful, tranquil life. Let's take a listen to Alishba's story entitled, The Birthday Gift, read by Anita Iqbal. I was dressed in a black sparkly sweater dress that day. The apartment was freezing, but the warm light coming from the lamp gave a sense of heat in the room. My mom had pulled my black straight hair away from my face using a headband she brought from work. She liked dressing me up, but I did not have the same enthusiasm when it came to her styling my hair. I liked my hair loose and free, not yanked back by headbands and hair ties. My attention switched between the snowfall outside and my mother running back and forth, in and out of rooms, preparing for Julie's arrival at our apartment in Brooklyn, New York. I could not stop swinging my legs under the chair, something I used to do a lot before because my feet could not reach the floor. I knew my mom didn't like when I did that, but I couldn't help it. Julie was coming, and that meant she had a birthday gift for me. My mom is a beautician. She used to work at a salon that Julie went to, 
It was a big salon in Mill Basin, and my dad used to take me along to pick her up from work sometimes. On the way, I would take out the pink flip phone that my parents gave me to take videos of the green trees rushing by. Or, I would put the flip phone to my ear and listen to the short recording of Umbrella by Rihanna that was set as a ringtone. The car rides were my favorite because I knew I was on my way to the salon to see my mom at work. I loved watching her converse with her clients and happily putting her hands to work. After my mom had to leave her job at the salon, I was sad that we didn't drive there anymore, but I was able to still watch her work sometimes. Now, bi-weekly, Julie comes to our home for my mother for threading and blowouts. Julie is a white, frail Italian woman who hates her hair getting frizzy. Since my mother started working at the salon when I was around two years old, Julie had practically known me my whole life. She and my mother often joked about how I was practically Julie's daughter too. My mom told Julie we were Indian, even though we aren't. This is because my mother feared the repercussions 9-11 brought onto our faith. I hadn't realized we hid the fact that we were Pakistani Muslims from her until she had once asked me if I had gotten my clothes from India, to which I responded, no, I got them from Pakistan. She looked at me confusedly and replied, don't you mean India? That was when my mother interrupted our conversation and nonchalantly played off my little admission. After Julie left, my mother told me about how Julie would leave if she found out we were Muslims. White Americans feared us, my mom said, and they would shun us if they knew. After that day, I kept silent about my parents' home country, not wanting my mother to lose one of her few clients she had. But today, Julie was bringing me a birthday present. I had told Julie a few weeks ago that I wanted a Barbie doll from the recent movie Barbie and the Three Musketeers when she had asked what I wanted for my seventh birthday. I wanted it to add to my collection of Barbie and Disney princess dolls. Growing up with two older brothers who were six and eight years older had taught me to adjust to playing with my toys on my own. My brothers were usually too busy with their homework or they just did not want to spend time with me. She arrived! My mother opened the door to let her into the apartment and I leaped off the couch to run and hug her. Happy birthday! She squealed as she handed me the wrapped gift. I beamed. I could barely wait to open it. Still, I tried to carefully peel away the tape and unwrap the red gift wrapper layer after layer. Before long though, I ripped an edge and tore the rest away with little patience remaining. Here it was! The gift! It was the... The gift was a Barbie doll. A brown-skinned Barbie doll. She was a character from the most recent movie, but she wasn't the main character. She was not the white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Barbie that always wears a pink dress, the main character of all the Barbie movies. I could not hide my disappointment. Julie had been watching me for my reaction. She could tell I did not like the Barbie doll. What's wrong? You don't like it? She kept asking questions and it was difficult to answer her because I knew I should be thankful and happy. I tried to look happy, tried to say thank you in a convincing way. But I felt that the doll was not beautiful. Julie looked at me, waiting. She expected an answer. 
I don't, I don't like the color of her skin, her hair, and eyes. They're too dark. She's not wearing pink. I murmured. You don't like her skin color, but it's the same as yours. Her response was not news to me. I knew her skin color was the same as mine, a medium shade of brown, and that her eyes were just as dark as mine, that almost looked black. It did not matter to me if she looked like me. Our features were not pretty, not like how Barbie was pretty. I felt bad for being picky, and I told Julie that I would still play with the doll. I opened the box and I took the doll out along with her tiny plastic sword. Though I went into a fantasy world in my imagination where the doll was fighting evil and attacking villains from the movie, I still overheard words from Julie's conversation with my mother. Is she racist? She asked my mother. I brought a doll that looks like her. She doesn't like it. I could tell my mom was embarrassed. No, no, my mother responded. She's just used to the other dolls. Don't worry, she'll like it after a while. I played with my doll and thought about what had happened. Why didn't I like the color of my skin? Why did it seem so inferior to white skin? I did not know why, and I didn't want to think about it anymore. While I was pondering, I broke the doll's purple plastic sword. The top snapped off from the lower part. I do not remember if it had been a subconscious solution to get rid of the doll, or if I was playing too rough, or if I was just mad. I actually don't remember ever seeing the doll again after that day, but I remember giving it to the adult since it was now broken. In her essay, *The Persistent Problem of Colorism*. Skin tone, status, and inequality. Professor Margaret Hunter reflects on how the ideology of light skin being considered superior to darker skin has impacted people of different ethnicities, and its link to industries who create products to solve the issue. Not only were the princesses I saw on American television white, but I was also exposed to Pakistani ads for skin bleaching products. The skin bleaching industry is thriving around the globe, particularly hunter states and post-colonial countries. Skin lighteners are commonly used in places including Mexico, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Jamaica, the Philippines, Japan, India, Tanzania, Senegal, Nigeria, Uganda, Kenya, Ghana, and less so, but also the U.S. I've seen commercials for skin bleaching products like Fair and Lovely, where they usually depicted women complaining about their dark skin tone to another woman, who would then pull out a Fair and Lovely product as a solution. In the commercial, they emphasized that the product would make your skin tone lighter by several stages until it was the ideal shade of white. While we didn't have that particular product in the house, my mother did have a gardener product that she expected me to use to lighten my skin tone. But I was inconsistent with its use, and it made no change. I eventually grew out of my Barbies, and thankfully for the hatred of my own skin color. As I grew up, I learned that my skin color was not a flaw, and in fact, the more I heard of the different techniques for obtaining whiter skin, such as using facial bleach, the more I resented the way brown skin is viewed in Pakistani culture. I know now. 
that the doll Julie gave me was beautiful. I wish I hadn't given her up. I should have treasured one of the only dolls released at the time that looked like me. But I'm glad now for at least a short time I had with her. She made me think about some important things back then. And so did Julie. The woman who still visits weekly. Even if I wasn't yet ready to understand. Wow. The story was so beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it was really, really good. <clears throat> thank you so much. Yes. I also think it was so beautiful um, how you showed the problem of colorism within a child's mind. Uh, and you really reflected how a, this affects a child's self-esteem, but not only that, their self-identity. <clears throat> I also loved how you really put us in the child's frame of mind by mentioning your pink flip phone. Mm-hmm. I know we all had those pink razors growing up. Yeah. <laughs> Mine was attached to my hip. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> and not only that, so I, this leads me to a question of how um, you bring this into adulthood, because at the end of your story, you speak as yourself in the present, a college student who sees colorism for the atrocities of social con- constructs that it is. You quote the persistent problem of colorism by Margaret Hunter and fondly note how you've learned to love your skin. So my question for you is, why did you choose to structure the story in this way, sharing your current reflection with readers after a childhood story? I really wanted to show how I grew and how my perspective changed on my co- the skin of my color once I grew up because as a kid, I really couldn't accept the color of my skin because it was so different from what I saw on TV and like the ideal um, main roles that were portrayed on television. And like, even like in America and other countries, it's always fair skinned people that are represented on television. So like Mm -hmm. once I grew up, I saw more people that looked like me on television. And Mm -hmm. not only that, but like, I started thinking, why should I be hateful towards the color of my skin? It's unique and should be accepted just as much as anyone else's skin. (laughs) Absolutely. Facts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And in the story, you reflect on, well, you talk about Julie and you say, white Americans feared us, my mom said. Then they would shun us if they knew. Telling a child that it's necessary to lie about their identity in order to avoid stigma can be a big deal for a young child. And in the story, there seemed to be an admiration or appreciation for Julie. So did having to lie to her change the way you viewed Julie in any way? Um, Did you think that she was another white, fearful American? Like, did your admiration ever, ever waver from that? I wouldn't say my admiration wavered. It just I always saw her as like family. So it was difficult having to hide my identity from her. Mm. Yeah. Because she's always been there while I was growing up. So I've always known her. And then I thought that she knew that about us. But then my mom told her, no, we have to keep this hidden from her. Mm. So that came as a shock to me. And like, I felt more closed off towards her after that. Right, right, right you can't be you can't be who you are like as yeah. a person um 
And you mentioned that Julie still visits the salon. The salon. So did you ever get to tell her that you were actually from Pakistan? Does she know yeah. that? Yeah, oh. now she knows. Oh. What was the reaction like? Um, I honestly do not know when my mom told her. All of a oh. sudden, she was like asking me how things are in Pakistan. And I was surprised. <laughs> I didn't even know when she found out. But um, she knows now. Nice. And then she was very accepting of it. I mean, yeah, she was. She would be from your story. That's mm-hmm. great. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to like reveal your true identity because you feel as though others may not accept you and you mm-hmm. want to be accepted. And I know Julie was such a good figure to you that you don't want her to look at you different just because mm-hmm. your family is from Pakistan. So, with that being said, what did your infatuation with the white? Barbie doll symbolize. Do you think the doll represented the only acceptable form of beauty at the time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because she was always the main princess portrayed in her movies. Mm -hmm. And back then in Disney too, all the princesses were white. On television, most of the main characters were white. So yeah, that was what my standard for beauty was at the time. And it's interesting, too, that you mentioned that because, um, as you mentioned previously, even to this day, we always um, admire white models or we see this perfection when it comes to the color of their skin where, you know, light skin is preferred over dark skin. We see magazines portraying um, dark skinned people in lighter skin tones, and it just makes um, females, young girls um, question whether they are worthy enough because of their skin tone. Which leads me to the last question for this interview. What would you like your audience or readers to take away from this story that you wrote? I think that I'd like readers to take away that you, should, you shouldn't really pay attention to what society tells you about how you should look or how you should behave because you should just be you. Like You shouldn't have to conform to anybody else's expectations and yeah you should really be accepting of yourself your true self mm-hmm. all said <laughs> thank you so so much for sharing this story with us and for giving us your thoughts of about what you about all of these questions and answering these questions so graciously for us we're so thank happy to have you having me thank you thank you thank you for having me Well, that concludes our second episode of the fifth season. Found out, we are all so excited to bring you new stories, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes content. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, our episode writers, our website developers, and everyone else behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon. And good night. Good night, guys. Night. 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 Night.
Sweet dreams.